Please remain, uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. Remain not seated, but stand. Our reading this morning is from Psalm 73, the prayer book of the church. We learn how to interact with God. A Psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, and in their arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, does God know? How can the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They always increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. Every morning I have been punished. If I had said this, I'll speak like this, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was embittered, uh, my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray. What a tremendous burden we are to ourselves sometimes and how much difficulty we encounter trying to make heads or tails out of this life of faith when sometimes things seem cattywampus. They don't seem like they're happening the way we thought they might. We're asking that you might reorient us, that you might turn us right side up this morning, that these words might be for the joy and progress of the faith of each one on my left immediately in front of me and on my right. Lord, I appeal to you on the basis of your kind and strong affection. 
bring glad-heartedness even in the midst of possible despair and dismay that may be in this room this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, we invite you. Amen. So, a few weeks ago, I was coming home from a date with Kathy, who is my wife. We were celebrating that we had gone on our first date 27 years ago when I was three and she was two. We played blocks together. And I came home and my mother was watching our children and was searching on the interwebs. And I heard her say that she was looking for a certain song, the song they used to play on this this show that was so formative in my youth. And I must tell you that a huge part of my spiritual formation as a child could be boiled down to three things besides uh, school and sports. One watching bad Atlanta Braves baseball. They were bad for a long time, and now they've, they've tried to resurge that. Two, I spent a lot of time loitering with the folks in Hazard County and Bo and Luke Duke. Three, I hung out with Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk, in that late 70s, early 80s version of the TV show. And my mother was telling our boys and wanting to show them the song that they played at the end of each of those episodes when Bruce Banner would be moving on to the next town. This man who was himself isolated and alienated, who had a deep and dark grave secret that when he got angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, he would say, that things would happen to him. He would suddenly be bulging with Lou Ferrigno-ness. His pigment and his skin would turn green. He would do things that he could not later remember when he turned back into a mere scientist. He was always hitchhiking to the next town, always a sojourner to the next place, never at home anywhere, accused of murder. And they would play this song. My mouth's so dry, I don't know if I could do it, but it goes... See, too dry. Sometimes I'm a good whistler, but not this morning. This haunting piano tune, one note at a time, heavy-handedly called the Lonely Man theme. But they would play it at the end of every episode, and my mother reminds me, and I remembered the song instantly when she told me. I remember how it went. I remember the reverberations in my insides that made my gut shake, and Apparently, I would say to her as a seven-year-old, or ever how old I was, Mom, why do they have to make the music so sad? I was a very emotionally intelligent young child. Why do they have to make the music so sad? As I've gotten older, I realized that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to help us enter into the sadness, to the loneliness, to the confusion, to the sense of being completely alone in the world that Bruce Banner felt because he had this, this great secret that he couldn't figure out and he couldn't undo. And it seems to me that that is 
a great question that Asaph here in Psalm 73 deals with. It's why does the music have to be so sad? It's a psalm and a way of interacting with God and with yourself for when you find yourself just as alienated as Bruce Banner, just as confused, feeling like there's no real place to take refuge or having to wander about. No one fully knows you. No one fully gets you. And maybe not even God himself. Why does it have to be so sad? Asaph in the psalm deals with a problem that happens to us when we pray. And this is the kind of thing that Christians are called upon to do, is to pray. You hear a lot about this. Y'all just did it together as a community, and it's beautiful to listen to one another pray. You learn so many aspects of Jesus that you didn't think of before by listening to one another pray. It's so lovely to me, and it's so instructive. But when you pray, you also have to deal with the fact that sometimes it seems like God has fallen asleep, that maybe... Like your grandpa after supper, he's just nodded off in the chair. He's not sleeping, he's just resting his eyes. But it's also a problem that just exists in the Christian life in general. Wait a second, I thought God was good. I thought he took special care of his children. But it looks like maybe he's forgetting them. And he's remembering everybody else. And so... Asaph says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant, and I looked around, and I was overcome with this grief when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Our first point today is this. When you are dealing with God, most especially in prayer, but in all of your life, When you're dealing with God, you're dealing with a relationship and not with a recipe. It's really important to realize this. We've been talking about prayer a lot up at Rock Creek on the mountain. And and so we're thinking about prayer. We're thinking about how do I come into the presence of God? How do I ask and ask away like the Bible urges me to do? How do I think of prayer as a real thing? And a lot of you here think of prayer as a real thing, a real means for getting a future that God has not yet brought about formed. Getting changes wrought in you and in others. Repair of things difficult, but when it seems like God's not listening, it seems like the prayers aren't being answered, what do you do then? And I think it's important to realize that we are dealing, and I think Bill Heibel said this, I don't know where I got it, but we're dealing with the relationship, not with a recipe. Asaph has this in his head, we're the covenant people. We're your privileged insider people. He has this idea in his head like a lot of us. If you do good, good should come to you. If you do bad, bad should come to you. If you are someone who has said, I'm the pure in heart. Surely God is good to Israel. That's, we believe we're the modern day Israel. We're the fulfillment of Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. One philosopher once said, to be pure in heart is to will one thing. It's to orient your whole life around one thing. And theoretically here, as Christian people, we are those who have said to Jesus, we want to make you the main thing in our lives. We want to realize that the universe exists for you and not for us, that you exist for you and not for us. We do not 
have you revolving around us. We revolve around you. We want you, Jesus, to be like a giant tree growing up through the middle of our living room so that we cannot do anything in our house and anything in our lives without taking you into account. We want that to be the case about us. Of course, it's not always the case. Of course, we're not steady in that commitment, but that's what we want to be the case. We want to be those who remember you, who are influenced by you, but here's what it seems like. It seems like those who are remembering you are forgotten by you. And those who have the extended middle finger to you, think about that one for a second, I can't do it, it's church. But those who are forgetting you are remembered by you. That seems, to use a great word, cattywampus. That seems upside down. That don't seem right. And if you're thinking of this as a kind of recipe, if I do this, God will do this. If I act in this way, then God is bound to act in this way. If you think of your relationship with God and your prayers like that, then you're going to be severely disillusioned. This is what has happened to Asaph. He's looking around, and he's saying it's not fair. I envy the arrogant. They have prosperity. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. When they eat mellow mushroom pizza and they gain weight, it looks like they've been working at CrossFit. When I look at a donut, I gain another chin. That is not fair. That is not fair, O Lord. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They, their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. It's not fair. They marry supermodels, even though it looks like they have the skin scalp of a Pekingese on their head. Think about that. It's a way homer. It's not fair. He has, this, in a way, the sort of sentiment that St. Teresa that you may have heard of, once said, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. I thought we were friends, God. And why are you being so kind to your enemies? Nothing is happening to them, and yet to me, you seem silent, absent, you've barred the doors of heaven, you're not answering. It feels like you're out of my life, and I want you to remember me. I'm remembering you. But if you're thinking of it as a recipe... You're just going to be disillusioned. I ask people in our congregation for their thoughts on prayer. I ask them several questions. And one, one friend wrote this back because this is what he does. He wouldn't just answer a question straightforward. He gave me this extended metaphor. He said, what if you were learning to prepare your grandmother's famous blackberry cobbler? I had asked, what's, so, what's frustrating about prayer to you? And that's how he responded. What if you were learning to prepare your grandmother's famous blackberry cobbler? There's a list of ingredients and an ordered set of steps. Blackberries, flour, oats, butter, brown sugar, vanilla. Preheat the oven to 400 degrees. Grease the pie dish. Cook till golden brown, etc. But what if within those steps was the following? Step five. After mixing the dough, look at it. Tell it 25 times what wonderful dough it is. You are dough. I am recognizing that you are dough. You're such wonderful dough. I can't believe what dough you are. Or, step eight. Now that you've greased the pie dish, pause. Sit quietly. 
Ask the Crisco to make the cobbler flaky light and to make the food separate nicely from the dish. Be certain that you have asked in the correct manner. You can ask it silently or out loud. Out loud will probably work better. Step 12, don't rush it. Before placing the dish in the oven, look over what you've done. Keep looking at it. Maybe, maybe hover your hands over the dish. Close your eyes. Wait. Keep doing this until you have done it sufficiently. If you put the pie in before you've done this sufficiently, it might be fine or it might not. He keeps going and at the end says, welcome to prayer. And see, you may have been taught at some point as I was as a young man when I was taught to address God, I was taught this substructure, acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's a good, a good little device, a good little approach for God. But if you start to think, if I just praise God enough, if I just confess enough, if I just do what is right, if I just fast enough, then suddenly God is beholden to me to do and realize every dream I have for the future you are going to be very frustrated because God isn't some celestial Coke machine. There is not a recipe for how to deal with him. He is a living being who is brilliant and mighty good and deeply concerned for what you become and what the world becomes, and therefore he is not going to merely succumb to everything you want because it wouldn't be good. So there must be something else going on when when you find yourself like Asaph saying, why does it have to be so sad? Why does it have to be seemingly so unfair? Why does it seem to be the case that God remembers those that I think he should be forgetting and he forgets those that I had hoped that he was going to remember? What is going on there? What's going on when I start to say, is this in vain? Do I believe in Jesus Christ in vain? Is it a waste? Am I, am I being tricked? Am I, as I've heard Troy say before, on candid camera? Is this all a big celestial joke? All day long I've been plagued. Every morning I've been punished. And when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. I'll tell you this. The sense of arrogance, the sense of hurt, the sense of alienation, the sense of being punished, the sense of being plagued, the sense of being forgotten. All of these things, Asaph realized, eventually, were meant to be couriers. Evites from God that said, will you come when it seems so sad and spread out your sorrows in my presence? Is there something, is it possible that something that you hate about your life right now that makes you groan the most is the largest invitation that God has given that says, look here, you can't interact with me by any kind of recipe, but I'm a living, breathing, affirming, loving force of good in the world for you and for all who will call on me. Come into the sanctuary of God. Come into the presence of God, which we've been told now isn't the temple anymore. It's gone viral. The Spirit of God has been unleashed, and everyone who believes in Jesus receives 
The Spirit of God, He inhabits us. He comes to move into the neighborhood of our own lives. And we can address Him at any time, any place. And when you start to do this, you realize something. It may be just the thing. If this is really a relationship that you need to be heard. I don't even know if you realize how badly you need to be heard sometimes. But if you look at your life, you realize some relationships you're in. It is very difficult for you to be told no, especially if the person who's telling you no doesn't seem to have taken you into account. C.S. Lewis one time said, we can deal with unanswered prayer, but what we cannot deal with is the sense that we are being ignored by God. If you're a boss, if you're a parent, if you're in charge of someone's well-being, you know this, how much more responsive they are to you if you listen to them. You know that you will rarely, if ever, open your mouth in any kind of honest way to someone that you think is not going to really fully hear you and let your words influence them. This is why I think Asaph gets changed when he comes into the sanctuary of God. When he realizes this relationship, he says, wait, 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 wait. I need to come into God's presence and I need to start talking to him. I need to start considering things from his vantage point. That's why he comes up with this idea. Wait, wait, wait. I'm with God. He's what I need. Being listened to is what helps you feel loved. And one of the gifts of prayer is simply that God listens to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, God shows his love for us not only in this, that he gives us his word, but also that he lends us his ear. And in fact, it is his hearing that precedes. His hearing comes before all our speech to him. We actually pray in ways we don't even know. We actually want to interact with him in ways we don't even know because his, his listening, his ear is inclined to us and it's like a vacuum that sucks prayers out of us. Have you seen... On the YouTube, this video, it has about 1.5 trillion hits. Okay, 1.5 million. Which surely must mean that somebody in this room is among that month number. And on it, you have this scene in a living room where there's a man and a woman, the husband and a wife. You might have participated in a very scene just like this. The lights are dim. You can tell you've entered into a heavy conversation. There is a lot on the line. Things are tense. The woman is describing, you know, it's just that there's all this pressure. And, and sometimes it feels like it's just right up on me. And I can just feel it, literally feel it. And it's relentless. And as she turns this beautiful camera shot, You see her profile, and there's a four-inch galvanized nail sticking out of her forehead, which is not addressed yet. And she keeps going, I just don't know if it's ever going to stop. I mean, that's what worries me. I just don't know if it's ever going to stop. And her husband, who is terrified and confused, he's looking at her. She looks at him. She stops talking. He knows it's his turn, and he says, yeah, well, but you... No, you do have a nail in your head. And she says, it is not about the nail. And he answers, are you, are you sure? 
Are you sure? Because I bet if we got the nail out that a lot of these things, and she says, stop trying to fix it. You always do this. Bamboozled as he is, says, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just trying to point out that maybe the nail is causing, you always do this, she says. You always try to fix things when what I really need you to do, what I really need you to do is just to listen. And he says, fearing his very life, well, you see, I don't think that really is what you need me to do. I think you need to get the nail out. And she says, see, you can't even listen now. He says, okay, okay, fine, I'll listen. And then she settles down, regathers her composure, and then she continues her litany of troubles. It's just that sometimes there's just this achy, I don't, I don't know what it is, I'm not sleeping very well at night, and all my sweaters have snags in them, <laughs> all of them. And he looks at her in defeat and says, that sounds really hard. And then they kiss and bonk heads with the nail. It's a brilliant little skit. You can look it up on the YouTube. It's a brilliant skit, but it gets at something pretty profound. Besides the inane madness of how a husband and wife ever communicate with each other in any significant way ever... But it tells you something about how important it is for us to be listened to, how badly we long to be listened to. And one of the things that will happen to you in the midst of these moments where you say, why does it have to be so sad? Why does it seem so unfair? It's entirely possible that the correction in the universe, the correction in your life that you think needs to happen, in fact, isn't the thing that needs to happen. What needs to happen is that God is summoning you that God is summoning you so that you can come into the presence of one who has long been waiting for you to speak. So that he'll hear you. So you can listen about the nails in your head and the nails in the other people's heads, the, the blips in the universe that are not going as they should. You're dealing with a, not a recipe, but a relationship. And it's very important to realize that in addition to this, if we are dealing with a relationship, we're dealing with this thing that's listening, that this listening is what actually helps you feel loved. This is why Asaph comes into this place where he says, Earth has nothing I desire besides you. Whom have I in heaven but you? See, he starts to see things because before, and this is the other point, he was thinking that his own feelings, his own interpretation of what was happening was all of reality. And if you're going to be a Christian, really, if you're just going to be a successful human in any way and not be completely swallowed up and drowned by your own reactions and interpretations of things, you have to realize your responses to things, your feelings, your emotional reactions to what happens in the world is not all of reality. Asaph says, 
When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. But it seemed so real to him. He felt oppressed. He felt like his feet were slipping. He felt like his world was falling apart. He felt like maybe it's really silly to believe in Jesus at all or to believe in God at all. I'm being punished. It's not fair. The universe is an unshepherded place. It's not kind. It's not, this world isn't bathed and cared for by God like I thought it might be. And he is, at the moment, he's being swallowed up by his own interpretations. But what he begins to realize is that when he gets in God's presence, he realizes there's way more to the story than his own emotional reaction is telling him at the moment. It's important to know. Think about this. You ever get mad at something? You ever get really angry? If you're the one angry, there is nothing more reasonable in that moment than the anger. But anger is a blinding emotion. It makes every other consideration in the dark. And it makes you feel like you have the justification to act ever how you want. Every time I'm mad, every time I lose my temper, every time I'm frustrated, it makes perfect sense to me. If that's someone coming down the mountain enjoying God's beautiful creation and going too slow, I am justified in being angry and thinking, maybe I should run them off the mountain. (laughs) Of course, because they're going to make me late. Why wouldn't that justify whatever I wanted to think or feel or do? And if you watch somebody get really angry, that's why these bloopers are made. You watch somebody on an athletic contest get really angry, it's kind of funny. It's almost cartoonish. Because if you're not the one angry, you realize how out of proportion it is, how disproportionate. It's a caricature of humanity. But in the moment when you're feeling it, try laughing at someone who's really good and angry. And and see if they go, ha, 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 you're right. You got me there, fella. Mm." You'll get hit in the nose. Do not laugh at an angry person. Anger... And so many of the things that we take in, we say, I must be reading reality right. He's come to this conclusion. Okay, God abandons the righteous. He takes care of the wicked. It doesn't matter to believe in God. He's no good. He can't be trusted. That's what his heart's telling him. His heart is leading him, and it's leading him away. It's leading him astray. Until he comes into the presence of God, he realizes, oh, wait a second, wait a second. Then I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He says, oh, wait a second. We're in the middle of a very long story that that we're only at the beginning of. We're only at the part where Augustus McCray and Woodrow F. Call are saying, I got to get to Montana before all the bankers and the lawyers get to it. Lonesome Dove, you got to watch it sometime. We're at the beginning of a story. We're in the middle of a story. It goes long. If it's only for this life we have faith in Christ, we are to be pitied among all men. We are people who will not die. We are people who will live on a new earth. We are people who have to wait for God to make everything right. The other day, in a, during the middle of a game I was watching, I was so frustrated about something, my father-in-law says, see, there was a correction. Justice always prevailed. And I said, yes, yes, uh, eventually. Justice does prevail, eventually. But it may not happen by next Tuesday. And if you start to think it must, and you start to think your reaction and your interpretation is the only way to think of it, you are going to be sunk. You cannot, you cannot, 
equate your take, your interpretation with all that there is. And so what brings life to this Asaph here is he comes into God's presence and he remembers, oh yeah, we're in the middle of a long story. God's going to set everything right. It just might not happen tomorrow. I can't tell anything at the moment by what is happening. And so he has to submit, in a way, to this larger picture of reality. My son has a Spanish teacher, and when they come up against difficult language rules in Spanish, if you ever studied a foreign language or if you ever studied English, you realize there's all these weird rules, syntactical, grammatical rules. And he says, listen, boys, if you get to this place... You just have to submit. And he has them do this. Oh, Espanol. Oh, Espanol. He has them bow down to Espanol to submit to them. To realize if you're ever going to learn this language, you have to submit to its rules. Every line of work, every game there is to play, every relationship you're in, there are certain rules you have to submit to. This is what it's like to be on this planet. And if you want to operate with God, you have to submit to a wisdom that's larger than yours. But what will happen as you do that is you'll start to see. There was a man in 1996 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, named Vern Harriman. He was an advertising executive, and for some reason I do not understand, he, he was power walking in the mall and uh, right near Thanksgiving. And he, I think he had vision problems, like severe vision problems. He couldn't see very well. And something happened, and suddenly as he was power walking in the mall, oh, Vern, smacked into a pole. That's sad. That was an appropriate response. Don't laugh at that. He smacked into a pole, and he said, and suddenly things got brighter. And he said, by the time I got home, I knew something was going on. His smacking into the pole actually caused sight to start to return to his eyes. And his ophthalmologist, Dr. David Sevensma, sort of a master of overstatement in Grand Rapids, said, his experience is definitely unique. He surprised a lot of us. Seven of you got it. This man who could not see collided with another reality and suddenly his sight came back. It's amazing. And I urge you to consider, like Asa finds here, that when you find yourself befuddled and confused about what's going on in the world, you need to spend some concentrated time with God. This isn't the kind of time sometimes that you can... It's just, this isn't like three minutes while you're washing the dishes. This is, i got to clear out some space, and i got to have a running inner dialogue with God, and i got to reorient myself to reality. i got to have a collision with God in prayer so that my sight can come back. Because right now I'm stuck in the gloomy little dungeon of myself. I just keep thinking about how they've hurt me. I just keep playing it over and over and over and over and over and in my head. I keep thinking about how he's not loving me the way he's supposed to. I keep thinking about how, the, how she is not coming through for me. I keep thinking about how my parents are so, won't help me the way I, they want me. I want them to. You're in the gloomy little dungeon of yourself. You need a collision with God himself in prayer so that your eyesight can come back. I'm going to close with this. I always have at least four hours of material and I just have to, Edit on the fly. I don't know anything about superheroes, even though I mentioned the Hulk earlier. I have children, and I have our new associate pastor, Corby Shields, and he knows a lot about superheroes, and so do my kids. I was recently at this Young Life Northwest Georgia 
dinner. One of our deacons is the head of that, and it was a wonderful evening, and the superhero theme, and someone told me that I have got to watch Daredevil on Netflix. Does anybody know about this show? The show Daredevil, well, it's, it's starring uh, Matt Murdock. He is a, a lawyer, a blind lawyer who operates within the justice system as a lawyer by day to, to right the wrongs, to care for the oppressed. But you see, there's a, something interesting about Matt Murdock. At night, he operates outside the confines of the judicial system. He is a one-man vigilante. He is blind, yet he sees. He knows judo, apparently. He can self-heal. He can run really fast. He can dodge bullets and hatchets, even though he cannot see. He seems to be able to almost fly. He can stay suspended for a while while he does a 720 and kicks a bunch of people. It's pretty fascinating. And in one scene, his friend Claire has been abducted by the Russians. Because it's always the Russians. And they are trying to frighten her into revealing his identity, which she does not know. They don't share their identity. Superheroes don't tell who they are. She doesn't know. And they're beating her. And they're smacking her around. They're hitting windows above her head with a baseball bat. They are terrifying her. And she sits cowering, bleeding, bruised, terrified. What is his name? Tell us. I don't know. I'm telling you, I don't know his name. And she's being truthful. And they're in this warehouse bunch of villainous Russians with their firearms threatening her. She's totally alone. Totally without help. When suddenly, the lights in the warehouse flick off. All the men are stunned. You see, she realized something happened. She realized that Daredevil, that Matt Murdock, who she doesn't know, is on the scene Because even the darkness is as light to him, you see. So as soon as she realizes the lights have all come off, she suddenly finds herself welling up with boldness. And she says, you want to know what his name is? Why don't you ask him himself, yourself? She realizes he's coming to the place. She realizes he is there now, even though it's totally dark. And then within minutes, he's got 42 of them, which that's his favorite odds. One against 42. And he just uses his fists and his feet and his sightless eyes. And within seconds, he's got 42 of them wrapped up in a bouquet, all dead. What's amazing to me is to think that this woman standing there, still bruised, nothing about her circumstance changed, still bloodied, still hurting, still huddled in a ball of terror, just knowing that a strong presence came into the room, changed her demeanor entirely so that she could yell at her tormentors. Why don't you ask him? She suddenly became bold. In the presence of one who she knew was for her and not against her. Prayer, when things are so sad, is not a recipe, it's a relationship. 
And it's a relationship where you get heard. And sometimes that is what needs to happen more than anything. You need to be heard to know that you are loved, to know that heaven and earth has nothing you desire more than God. What I really need is God. You're the kind of person, probably like me, who sometimes thinks, God, if you don't fix this about my life, I'll die. You have solutions for yourself. I have earnestly and honestly in times in my life thought, if I got a pair of suede Sebagos, my life would be fixed. If I just could get a Jeep, a Jeep, a Jeep, then suddenly all the insecurities of my life would be taken away. All the struggle, all the angst that comes from being a human in this world with so many uncertainties would suddenly be fixed that something substantial about my life would change if I just had a Jeep. Do you realize how stupid that is? But you all are just as stupid. You're welcome. We all do this. There are things we think if we just get the right house, the right job, the right spouse, the right something, you have a solution in your mind. If this will happen, I will be changed. And when it doesn't happen, even if nothing about your circumstance changes, one of the things that happens in prayer is you get the boldness of knowing someone's listening. Someone who can do something about it. Someone that you really crave underneath the stuff you think you crave. Why does it have to be so sad? I don't know. But each little sadness should be an invitation to draw near to the one who has long been waiting for you to speak. Whose hearing precedes anything you ever say. Who wants you to know that he came so that you could belong to him. Or what happens, you could be okay. Amen.